would like today to give you a brief rundown on the whole book of Romans. Remember, in the four Gospels, we have the revelation of our Savior as a man in the midst of men. And then when you come to the book of Acts, we have where the continued ministry of our Savior through his people by the Spirit of God. But when you come to the book of Romans, there is given to us the great foundational book concerning the gospel of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the gospel of the grace of God. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. Our teacher is Dr. John G. Mitchell. Dr. John G. Mitchell often asked a question that is still inscribed on the library wall on the campus of Multnomah University. He asked it of every class and challenged every student with it. Don't you folks ever read your Bibles? It is quite evident that he did. Dr. Mitchell once forgot his Bible in his office when he arrived to teach a graduate-level class on the Minor Prophets. Without a pause, he quoted the scripture for the day, word for word, from memory. Dr. Mitchell knew his Bible. Many were blessed by his Bible teaching, and today we invite you to share in those blessings by listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. The name of our study, The Unchanging Word, highlights the fact that God's Word has not changed. What God reveals in His written Word was true in the past, is still true today, and will be true tomorrow. The truth in God's Word was, is, and always will be true. God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me to abide. All I need for living is mine by just believing. Life begins at Calvary, life that never ends. Today, the Unchanging Word welcomes you to this last program in this series on the Book of Romans. We appreciate you joining us. Please go to our website, unchangingword.life, and please do contact the station to let them know how the Unchanging Word has encouraged and blessed you. Well, in this lesson, Dr. Mitchell will be doing something he says that he rarely ever does. He will be presenting a summary overview of the entire book of Romans, a bird's-eye view of the chapters of this foundational book of the Christian life. Romans is the systematic presentation of the revelation of God's righteousness and the believer's secure relationship to this eternal God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, turn in your Bible to Romans for an overview of this book and join our teacher, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you. Good day, friends. I'm going to do something today that I rarely ever do uh, on our program. We have spent quite a number of weeks in the study of the book of Romans, 16 chapters. In our last lesson, we finished up with the fact that God was able, had the power, the authority uh, to perfect every one of God's people, to establish us in the gospel of the grace of God, according to Jesus Christ, and then to realize that he has given to us a tremendous relationship of union with him and to share with him in his glory. And then he has left us down here on the, on the earth to bear testimony for him in one way or another. Now, I would like to suggest this, that before I take up what I want to say to you today, 
It may be I am talking to Christians who have had very little instruction, uh, who are trying to please the Lord and they love the Savior, but if you were to sit down and, and take a measurement or to analyze your life since you've been a Christian, you may confess that you've done so, so little for the Lord. Now, don't be discouraged about that. I'm not rationalizing uh, any case of unbelief or laziness. What I'm trying to say is something that will encourage you that wherever God has put you, that's the best place for you to live for God. And that's the best place for you to witness for him by your life as well as by your words. And I would like today to give you a brief rundown on the whole book of he of Romans. Now, as I said a moment ago, this is something I, I rarely ever do. But I just feel after having finished 16 chapters of Romans, I'd like you to just sit back and, and just think through with me on this marvelous book of Romans, which is the foundational book of the New Testament, especially of the epistles. You remember in the four Gospels, we have the revelation of our Savior as a man in the midst of men. And then when you come to the book of Acts, we have where the continued ministry of our Savior through his people by the Spirit of God. But when you come to the book of Romans, there is given to us the great foundational book concerning the gospel of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the gospel of the grace of God. And Galatians is a guarding of the doctrine of Romans and Corinthians guards the practice of Romans. We have said this before, and I'm just repeating it. Now, when you come to the book of Romans, Paul's great desire is that these Roman Christians, uh, that is, these Christians at Rome, whether they were bond or free, rich or poor, made no difference to Paul, they were in Christ, and he was so desirous that they be established in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he starts in, he could say in verse 14, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, whether Jew or Gentile. For in this gospel is revealed the righteousness of God. Now, the gospel, remember, is a revelation not of your love, not of your righteousness, but of the righteousness of God. This apparently is something that people very seldom think about. We think about our frailties, we think about our sins and our failures, and you might even think about how good you are. But to stop and think about the righteous character of God, and that we must stand in the presence of God, having a righteousness that satisfies Him, that's beyond our ken. So the Spirit of God reveals through the Apostle Paul the divine provision whereby, through the gospel, we might stand before God in all his righteousness. But to do this, he must first of all shut man's mouth talking about his own righteousness, which is a very easy thing for man to do. In fact, all of us are guilty to a more or less degree of talking about how good we are, how righteous we are, how we've done this and how we've done that. And we're not like Tommy down the street, uh, not like this old sinner down there. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, we're better than that. So Paul starts in, in chapter 1, verse 18, and finishes the chapter, verse 32, proving that the Gentile world 
was entirely in such sin that God gave them over to uncleanness, and God gave them over to vile affections, and God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do the inconvenient things. Now, there was no, there's no argument about chapter 1. It was so obvious because this is the history of the world, the history of those who are outside of Christ. This is the history of so many in America, given over to uncleanness, to vile affections, and to a reprobate mind. The tragedy today is that there are religious leaders in our country and political leaders and other kinds of leaders who would legalize the very sins that brought the destruction of God upon the old world in the flood and brought down the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Same sins that caused God to take Israel and send it into captivity. And the wrath of God came upon them to the uttermost. And don't you for one moment think, friend, that because we're in America, where the word of God is free to be given, that we're going to escape the judgment of God. And for us to legalize the very moral corruption, which brings the very wrath of God upon men, uh, this gives to us an idea of the last days in which we live. Now, when you come to chapter 2 of the book of Romans, you have where he's got a much more difficult job. He's got to prove the moralist and the religionist just as equally guilty as the outbroken sinner in chapter 1. So he does this on a, on a fourfold way. He takes up the ways that God is going to judge men. And God, of course, must be righteous in his judgment. He not only knows the works of man, but he knows the secrets of man. He's going to judge men according to truth. He's going to judge men without respect of persons. He's going to judge men according to their works. He's going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel. And starting in, in verse 17 and running through chapter 3, verse 8, we have where the Jew, the religious Jew, is just as equally guilty as the, as the moralist of the Gentile world and the outbroken sinner in chapter 1. And he uses the Old Testament scripture to do this. He takes their own history and he proves that they're just as bad as the Gentile. And before the Jew can say another word, the Apostle Paul then begins to write from verse 9 through verse 20 of chapter 3, and he shuts our mouths, proves our, our character is unrighteous, our lives are unrighteous, and there's nothing left but the judgment of God. Every man's mouth shut, and the whole world is brought guilty before God. Now, having shut man's mouth concerning his own self-righteousness, God now opens up his heart, and he reveals to us his way of making or counting people righteous. So from chapter 3, 21, running right through chapter 5, verse 11, we have God's way of declaring righteous the ungodly, the unrighteous who believe. And we find that now there is a righteousness of God without works of any kind. It's manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God which is by faith. It's unto all them that believe. And he goes on to speak of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, not only put away our sins, but vindicated the righteousness of God. And if I can use the term, he freed God to make it possible for the righteous God to take 
hell-deserving sinners and transform them into saints to make them righteous, fitted to come in the presence of God. You must agree with me. The impossibility of a man making himself or doing something with himself to make him acceptable to God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is true. And if we're going to stand before God acceptable, then we must have righteousness. And there's only one righteousness God looks at, and that's his own. It's a wonderful thing that when a sinner accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not only forgiven his sin and redeemed and ransomed, but he's justified, he's pronounced righteous by God. That's what you have in chapter 3, that God might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Hence, there's no boasting. It's all shut out. Therefore, we conclude that a man is declared righteous by faith without works. Now, the question is raised at the end of chapter 3, do I have the right kind of faith? But when we come to chapter 4, Paul says that we are justified by faith. He uses Abraham as an illustration, and we are justified without works, and he uses David as an illustration, and then we're justified without ceremonies. And he goes back again to Abraham and circumcision. Then what is justifying faith? It's faith in the God who raises the dead. Abraham, at a hundred years of age, approximately a hundred years of age, he, he believed that God would give him a boy, even though he was counted dead. And it goes on to say that if we believe on him, who raised Jesus from the dead, our faith is counted for righteousness. So you see, justifying faith is faith in the God of resurrection. And you know, you well know that, the basic fact of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ is his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to the right hand of God. Christ be not raised from the dead, we haven't a thing. Now the next question is raised in chapter 5. All right, Paul, I have the right kind of faith, but what if I lose my faith? So in the first 11 chapters of chapter 5, he tells us that faith cannot be destroyed by tests, that faith is guaranteed by the love of God, and faith is guaranteed by the present ministry of Christ. Now, starting at chapter 5, verse 12, and running through chapter 8, you have the great doctrine of, of sanctification, God's way of sanctifying his people. Now, between chapter 5, 12 through 21 of the fifth chapter, we find that we are identified with Christ, this risen Christ. When I was born into the world, I was identified with Adam. I belonged to Adam's race. I was born insane. I was under the sentence of death. Death reigns in Adam's race. There's no argument there. Now, how can I get into a race where there is no death? So I was transformed by my union with Jesus out of Adam's race into a new race. The death of Jesus Christ severed the relationship to the old race which was under death. In chapter 6, how am I going to be delivered from sin and its power? So I find in chapter 6 that the death of Jesus Christ emancipates me, severs the relationship between the believer and sin as a master. If you take that chapter, we are delivered from sin as a place in which to live. We are delivered from sin as a principle of operation, and we're delivered from sin as a practice in our lives. 
Oh, we have been eternally delivered from sin as a master, the tyrant sin which brought death. We have been delivered from that eternally through our union with Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 7, we have something else. The death of Jesus Christ not only delivers me from Adam's race, which is unto death, and delivers me from the tyrant sin as a master, but it also delivers me from the law and its bondage, which you have in chapter 7. We've been delivered from the law and its bondage through the death and resurrection of the Savior. And he's the only one who could deliver us from the law and its bondage. And when you come to chapter 8, we are in Christ Jesus. What an amazing chapter. We are in a new place. We are in a new position. We are in Christ, this risen Christ. And then from verses 2 to 4, we, are in a, we have a new deliverance. Or we, are, we have a new law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath set me free from the law of sin and death. And what the law could not do because it couldn't do anything for us. God sent his son and we were delivered. Then from verse 5 through 13, we are in a new place in which to live. We're not seen any longer living in the desires and, and bondage of the flesh, but we are living in the spirit. If so, be the spirit of Christ dwell in us. This is chapter 8. And then from verse 14 to 17 of chapter 8, we have a new relationship. We can say now that we are the sons of God. We have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. We have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And then we have a new hope. Uh, here I am still in a body that's not yet redeemed. So from verse 18, running right on down through verse uh, 20, 25, we find we have a new hope. Paul could say, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And he goes on to speak of the fact that we're saved by hope. We wait for the redemption of the body. When Christ saved us, my friend, he meant the whole man, spirit, soul, body. And the Lord will not be satisfied until every Christian, the weak as well as the strong, the young as well as the old, will stand in his presence conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then we have a, a new knowledge, or we have, we have a, a new provision made for us. We have the Spirit of God in us pleading our cause. We have Christ in heaven pleading our cause up there. You see, if I can put it this way, Christ has a great deal of interest in you and me. So the Spirit of God is in us taking care of his interests down here in us. But I have a great deal of interest up there in glory, and Christ up there is taking care of my interests there. Isn't it wonderful the provision he's made? Christ is taking care of our interests up there, and the Spirit of God is taking care of his interests down here. And starting in at verse uh, 29 and running right down through verse 34, uh, in fact, down through verse 30, 31, pardon me, you, you have the the blueprint that God gives to us, whom God, whom God called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. God has determined that we shall be conformed to the image of his Son, which is followed by four questions and answers. Uh, what can you say to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? He that spared not his own Son, 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall he ending to the charge of God's elect when God has pronounced us righteous? And nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's the end of the doctrinal side of the book of Romans. Now chapters 9, 10, and 11, the question is raised, is God righteous in his dealings with the nation Israel? Now in chapter 9, God was righteous in choosing them to a place of honor that through them Messiah should come, through them the word of God would be given, and through them his name would be magnified among the Gentiles. That's chapter 9. In chapter 10, he has turned Israel away. He's offering uh, a personal salvation, and he's offering a universal salvation. When I say universal, I mean it's open for Jew and Gentile, for anybody, whatever they are, whoever they are. And when you come to chapter 11, God is righteous in the fulfilling of his promises to Israel. He's going to restore Israel and put her where she belongs. He's going to make a new covenant with Israel, and so on. And the chapter ends, all oh, the depth of the wisdom, both of the uh, wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I tell you, it's an amazing passage. Now, from chapters 12 through 16, we have the practical side of the book. And here you have God manifesting through his people his own righteousness or practical righteousness. My responsibility, or if you please, my relationship to God, and then my relationship to the church and to other Christians, then my relationship to the enemies of the gospel, then my relationship to, uh, to civil authorities in chapter 13, my relationship to society in chapter 13, and then my relationship to the weaker brethren in chapter 14 and the beginning of 15. And then you have the final exhortations in chapters 15 and then his salutations in 16. I've just finished this whole book of Romans for you. I just wanted to do that because I know it gives you a telescopic vision of the gospel of God as he has wrought it out for us and made it clear to us in this book of Romans. Please keep on reading it, will you? And may the Lord wonderfully bless you for his own precious name's sake. Life is moving faster than it ever has before. What tomorrow brings us isn't certain anymore. So many paths from which to choose, don't know which way to run. Cause every road leads nowhere, every road except for one. Praise the Lord, He never changes. I come to Him, He's always there. He comforts me. takes the burdens that I bear. Praise the Lord, He never changes. He's never any other way. And He'll be the same tomorrow as He was and is. 
faces come and go like ashes in the wind Attitudes arise that I don't fully understand The things that you can count upon grow fewer every day But when their number gets to one, that one will show the burdens that I bear. Praise the Lord, He never changes. He's never any other way. And He'll be the same tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study today. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Bible Broadcast. Life begins at Calvary.